This summer, beginning last week, we are spending the 12 summer Sundays with our Unitarian Universalist Six Sources. And between the Music and Worship Committee and me, you will hear twice about each of these sources, which are found in the front of your hymnal. Last week, you heard from Dosho Port of the Nebraska Zen Center, and in his sharing of his Buddhist faith, he was speaking to source number three, wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. Today, I'm addressing source two, the words and deeds of prophetic women and men, which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, <coughs> compassion, and the transforming power of love. I want to say a couple words uh, about the meaning of the word prophet. I think in common understanding, the word prophet has come to be understood as someone who foretells the future, someone who predicts the future, a soothsayer. And really, that is not uh, an accurate understanding of what prophet means in the Jewish or Christian biblical tradition or in other religious traditions that might use that word. In the biblical tradition, the prophet is the person who speaks for God, who brings God's word to us. So really, a prophet is best understood as someone who upholds uh, the highest uh, teachings and values and speaks to that. And so that's how the words and deeds of prophetic men and women work. That's why they confront us, uh, challenge us to confront those powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. They are serving as uh, spokespeople for the spirit of life to do that. So today, I want to share with you a prophetic voice from our own history on the Unitarian side of our Unitarian Universalist faith. And this is the voice of Fanny Barrier-Williams, whom you see up here. I want to share her story with you and have you hear her prophetic speaking, the words of truth that she brings to us uh, from almost 100 years ago. So she is truly uh, an ancestral prophet for us. She was born in 1855 in Brockport, New York, which is a small town, back then probably more like a village, way in upstate New York, uh, between Buffalo and Rochester, not very far from Lake Ontario. Her father, Anthony Barrier, was born to a white Frenchman and his wife, a free black woman in Philadelphia. Fanny's mother, Harriet Prince, was born in rural New York to a white man, Noah Prince, and his wife, a mixed-race woman named Philantha Macy. Fanny Barrier-Williams' father, Anthony, owned, uh, built, organized, and owned a barber shop and retail store. And after their marriage, he and Harriet also began to invest in real estate in Brockport and the surrounding area. And over time, they became a successful and affluent couple, able to provide their three children with not only the basics of life, but certainly what might have been considered luxuries at the time. And something as I read about Fannie Williams' life was a surprise to me. 
Brockport was really a bit of a racial utopia. Now, I wouldn't have believed that if white historians had told me so. I would say they were probably engaging in some kind of delusion. But this is from Fanny's own words. She wrote uh, a fair amount about her own life, including an autobiography. And what made it a bit different is that, according to town records, no one in that town had ever owned enslaved people. There were no racially divided public spaces, and there was no social separation either by law or practice. There was no separation of people by race. There were less than uh, two dozen African-American people in Brockport when the barriers were living there. Fanny and her sister Ella and her brother George were the only black children in the public schools, and they were the only black family at the First Baptist Church. And that's where her father was the church treasurer for decades and where her mother uh, was among the people who taught Sunday school. And when Fanny's father was elected treasurer of the First Baptist Church and when he and Harriet were married and later when Fanny was married all in Brockport, the articles in the local newspaper did not even mention their race. And that was really, really unusual in the mid-19th century. As Fanny later recalled in her autobiography, there was such interracial intimacy that the associates, schoolmates, and companions uh, with whom uh, she and her brother and her sister um, hung out with, she said, quote, they were all white boys and girls. Our relationships were natural, spontaneous, and free from all restraint. We went freely to each other's houses, to parties, socials, and joined on equal terms in all school entertainments with perfect comradeship. We suffered from no discriminations on account of color or previous condition and lived in blissful ignorance of the fact that we were practicing the unpardonable sin of social equality. All three of the barrier children graduated from the local high school, and all of them attended the local college, the Brockport Collegiate Institute, which I believe now is um, State University of New York at Brockport. And Fanny graduated from the institute in 1870. She completed the rigorous classical track that prepared her to be a school teacher, and she was the first African-American graduate of the school. Her parents, Anthony and, and Harriet Barrier, were friends with Frederick Douglass, who was living at that time uh, a little bit to the east in Rochester, New York. And when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, the Barriers and others in Brockport became part of the Underground Railroad, assisting many enslaved people to freedom in nearby Canada. Fanny's parents, in spite of all of their financial and social success, their public activism and good citizenship, actually were not citizens and could not vote. Uh, as you may or may not recall, no black people, enslaved or free, anywhere in the United States could be citizens. Uh, in spite of living, working, going to school, owning property, and all of those good things, they were never citizens. That did not happen until the 14th Amendment to the Constitution was passed in 1868. So Fanny Barrier Williams really grew up in what was a highly 
unusual, almost egalitarian in terms of race, society uh, that was um, probably close to unique in our country. After her graduation from college in 1870, Fanny was moved by her care and concern for recently freed black people of the South. She wanted to be part of a movement that sent many teachers to the South during the Reconstruction era, not only to teach and set up schools for children, but also for adults. And she was sent to Missouri to be a teacher. And in that experience, by doing that, and she you know, went by herself, for the first time ever, she really felt those degrading forces of segregation and racism. As June Edwards writes, in defiance, she took advantage of her light skin and genteel manner when in the South and sat in the train cars reserved for whites. In one incident, she spoke French to a questioning conductor and then had to calm herself by remembering that she did have French ancestry and that, quote, their barbarous laws did not al allow a lady to be both comfortable and honest. So she felt kind of guilty about deceiving the conductor, but her thought was, th these are unjust laws and I can't you know, respect myself and obey their laws. Fanny had always been very artistically inclined in music. She played the piano and also in painting and drawing. She apparently was exceptionally gifted and she wanted to pursue that while she was being a teacher in Missouri. And she actually found a white painting instructor who agreed that she could be part of his painting class. But when she got there, he had surrounded a seat with screens uh, for her to sit in so that none of the white students would have to see her or feel her presence with them. And when she came and realized that that was the situation, she refused to participate. Being in Missouri was really almost unendurable for her and she said, I did not have the training that would allow me to survive that humiliation. So after, I think it was maybe two years or maybe even a little bit less, she went to Washington, D.C. And there she became a school teacher in the newly forming public schools for African-American children. And she was well paid. Uh, black teachers were paid the same as white teachers in Washington, D.C. at that time, although the schools were segregated, which I think was probably unusual. And even though she immediately took her place amidst the educated, elite, and wealthy black community of Washington, D.C., her teaching was incredibly, incredibly hard work because there were um, children, uh, many of whom who might have um, experienced slavery when they were younger, and there weren't enough teachers and there weren't enough schools, so the schools were very crowded. She had between 60 and 75 students in her classes. And for those of you who are teachers, you know that's like way too many. Um, way, way too many. At one point, she took a brief sabbatical from teaching a few months uh, because she had asked for and been admitted to study at the New England Conservatory of Music up in Boston. 
the um, owner or proprietor of the school had been a well-known abolitionist before the Civil War, and he'd been very pleased to admit Fanny as his first African-American student. However, he had also recruited broadly for students, especially young women, and um, young Southern women students asked him to exclude Fanny from the school. They said they would leave if Fanny was not dismissed. So he did dismiss Fanny, uh, you know, because of the economic reasons for him that all of his Southern students said they would absolutely not be in classes with her. So by this time, Fanny had certainly realized that whether she was in the North or the South or anywhere that she was, racial prejudice was nationwide. And here's what she wrote. She said, I have still many white friends and the old home and school associations are still sweet and delightful and always renewed with pleasure. Yet I have never quite recovered from the shock and pain of my first bitter realization that to be a colored woman is always to be discredited, mistrusted, and often meanly hated. So after her sabbatical at the New England Conservatory of Music was cut short, she went back to uh, Washington, D.C. to her teaching life. I want to say one thing about the teaching that was so interesting to me. There were African-American newspapers in D.C., <coughs> quite a few of them, and one of the things they did, because the, the, the African-American teachers in the schools were really under a lot of public scrutiny, they actually published articles detailing the shortcomings of the African-American uh, teachers that were teaching in the schools, I guess as a way of holding them accountable. But I'm sure that added another, another whole level of stress uh, to the teaching profession there. Imagine if someone wrote in detail and specifically about you as a teacher in the Omaha World Herald uh, in incredible detail. I, I, I just can't imagine. But when she went back to Washington, D.C. and began teaching again, moving in these um, elite uh, social circles in the African-American community, she met and then married a brilliant law student, Samuel Lang Williams, known as Lang. He had been the first black man to graduate from the University of Michigan and the first black person to graduate from the George Washington School of Law. He had been born into slavery in Georgia, the son of an Englishman and an enslaved woman. And I couldn't find any details about why, but he was taken as a child by a white family, the Langs, to rural Michigan, where he worked for them, but was also supported by them to attend school and to make his own way successfully in the world. So he and Fanny both had had this uh, similar experiences of growing up in rural, mostly white uh, places and of having very close contacts and relationships with white people. After their marriage, the cu couple moved to Chicago where Lang had also lived for a while before going to law school and where he began a successful career as a lawyer, at times working for the federal or local government and also maintaining a private law practice. The Williams, who had no children, dedicated themselves to both the cultural and the humanitarian uplift of black people, especially women. 
uh, and they both had been involved in this in Washington, D.C., but now, as very prominent members of the local black community, they began to uh, initiate their own uh, projects and efforts. So searching for a religious community, the couple joined the Unitarian Church of All Souls. The white minister there, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, was truly a radical and wonderful person, sometimes even too radical for other Unitarians. He was, um, he was uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, maternal uncle, uh, a Welshman. They were all of Welsh heritage. He was a supporter, an unequivocal supporter of civil rights for all, for voting rights for women, the ordination of women ministers, and also an ardent pacifist. He was also a very strong critic of traditional Christianity, uh, and that was probably where he stepped on the most toes. Now, the Williams, uh, Lang and Fanny, already were very progressive-minded regarding religion, um, and they were also both very committed to their responsibility to assist African-American people. So the Unitarian faith, especially under Reverend Jones, was an excellent fit for them as he was very much part of um, the social gospel progressive movement at the end of the 19th century. Along with a white woman Unitarian minister, Celia Parker Woolley, Fanny founded the Frederick Douglass Center, which fostered positive race relations and uh, gave lectures, discussions, and classes of all kinds. It was really a popular place for middle-class African Americans in Chicago to socialize. But the center also provided a variety of social support and educational service for those who were struggling financially and socially. You may have heard of um, sort of groundbreaking social worker Jane Addams, who founded Hull House in Chicago, which was a resource for immigrants and people in poverty of all kinds. Uh, Fanny knew Jane Addams, worked with her, and really used Hull House as the model uh, for the Frederick Douglass Center. Lang and Fanny also began and sustained a number of other organizations and clubs in the support of African-American people, really using their wealth and their social connections, both black and white, uh, to bring others along with them. Fanny had continued her studies of art in Washington, D.C., and she became a sought-after portraitist with many people, both African-American and white, commissioning uh, oil portraits from her. What brought Fanny to prominence nationally was the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Fanny was invited to speak at two of the fair's largest events, the World's Congress of Representative Women and also the first meeting of the Parliament of the World's Religions, which has also started meeting again every few years since 1993. They celebrated the 100th year of the Parliament of World's Religions and decided to keep going. It's going to be held this year in Toronto uh, in November, and I am planning to go. Um, just sounds very exciting. People from all over the world uh, of every faith you can think of uh, talking and sharing and learning together. So both of the speeches that she gave at the Chicago World's Fair attracted a lot of attention and brought her much acclaim um, and praise. So I want to talk about her speech to the Parliament of the World's Religions, and it was titled Religious Duty to the Negro. And she took no prisoners in her speech, scorning how traditional Christian faith had been misused 
to subjugate enslaved people. And here is part of, of what she spoke. All attempts to Christianize the Negro were limited by the important fact that he was property of a valuable and peculiar sort and that the property value must not be disturbed even if his soul were lost. If Christianity could make the Negro docile, domestic, and less an independent and fighting savage, let it be preached to that extent and no further. Do not open the Bible too wide. Such was the false, pernicious, and demoralizing gospel preached to the American slave for 200 years. But bad as this teaching was, it was scarcely so demoralizing as the Christian ideals held up for the Negro's emulation. When mothers saw their babes sold by Christians on the auction block in order to raise money to send missionaries to foreign lands, when black Christians saw white Christians openly do everything forbidden in the Ten Commandments, when indeed they saw, as no one else could see, hypocrisy in all things triumphant everywhere, is it not remarkable if such people have any religious sense whatsoever? She went on to criticize harshly those Christians who, after preaching a false gospel to enslaved people while not living up to Christian ideals themselves, dared to judge black people as having no morality. And she spoke of how African-American people needed to hear and receive the highest and most progressive form of religion for their own spiritual support and moral improvement. The advancement of African-Americans had been blocked, she said, by, quote, the tendency of creeds and doctrine to obscure religion, to make complex that which is elemental and simple, to suggest partisanship and doubt in that which is universal and certain. So what, she asked, is the religious duty of the nation to the Negro? She said, more religion and less church may be accepted as the general answer to the question. Less theology and more of human brotherhood, less declamation and more common sense and love for truth, must be the qualifications of the new ministry that shall yet save the race from the evils of false teachings. With this new and better ministry will come the, the reign of that religion which ministers to the heart and gives to all our soul functions an impulse of righteousness. So can you hear that good um, 19th century Unitarianism coming through loud and clear? After her well-received speeches at the World's Fair, Fanny became a national public speaker on social issues related to the improvement of all conditions for African-American people, especially women. She often ended her speeches by giving a brief piano concert because she had never uh, given up her music as well. She became, uh, along with Lang, uh, a prolific author and editor and she and Lang were early members of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Yet as author June Edwards said, for the most part, Fanny Barrier Williams enjoyed a privileged, cultured life, but her heart ached for all the black women who struggled to survive in a society that barred them from education and employment for which they were capable. Even for herself, she wrote, whether I live 
in the north or the south, I cannot be counted for my full value. Nevertheless, she persisted. She urged white and black businessmen to hire black women into many roles. She challenged real estate segregation codes in Chicago because she and Lang had to live uh, in an African-American-only neighborhood. It didn't matter how wealthy they were. She became the first African-American admitted to the prestigious Chicago Women's Club, but it took 18 months because there was a small group of women uh, that did not want to admit her, but, but she refused to back down and was finally uh, admitted. And at age 71, she became the first trustee, the first African-American trustee of the Chicago Public Library. After her husband died in 1925, Fanny returned to Brockport to live with her sister, Ella, and she died in 1944 at the age of 89. As an activist and an advocate for equal rights and civil rights for African-American people, and as a staunch religious progressive of the Unitarian persuasion, Fanny Barrier Williams remains a prophetic voice for us today. In all of her life and humanitarian achievements, she continued to proclaim the progressive form of religion and spiritual teaching that inspired her work. And she said that, quote, even though my faith was often strained to the breaking point, I dare not cease to hope and inspire and believe in human love and justice. I dare not cease to hope and aspire and believe in human love and justice. And so may it be for us as a Unitarian Universalist congregation, we dare not cease to hope and aspire and believe in human love and justice. So may it be, blessed be.